0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today has been passionate about one person for many decades. He's Charles Pignon, president of Frank Sinatra Enterprises and the Sinatra Archivist. We're going to talk about Frank Sinatra's legacy, which includes the re-release of a studio album no one anticipated, Watertown. It was recorded in 1969, and released in 1970, and on June 3rd this year, Frank Sinatra Enterprises and UME, that's Universal Music Enterprises, presented a newly mixed and remastered version from the original reprise session tapes. Charles produced the updated edition from the new mixes, created by longtime Sinatra engineer Larry Walsh. The concept of Watertown unfolds as a personal tragedy about a working man with children whose wife suddenly leaves him. Sinatra's performance elicits Sadness, defeat, and forlornness, but also a story about one man's resilience. For everything about Frank Sinatra, including the re release of Watertown, go to Sinatra.com. And Charlie, welcome to the show.
1: Ira, thanks for having me. I've been thinking prior to this, we've known each other at least 20 years. I, I don't want to so. age ourselves. <laughs>
0: I agree. Let's not. But it's got to be at least twenty years. You're absolutely right. Yes. I don't think I've ever asked you this question, and you've been on several of my shows over those years. What fueled your dedication to Frank Sinatra while he was alive, and obviously continues to this day?
1: Well, I was very lucky because my grandpa. I was born in upstate New York, so being Italian and being in the East Coast. Uh, you know, that old joke in every Italian restaurant, they had a picture of the Pope and Frank Sinatra and Frank's picture was above the Pope. <laughs> so I, I, I grew up with that music and my grandfather, as I said, was in the vending business and he had a lot of. Jute boxes. And as a teenager on the weekends, I would work with him. He had about 80 to hundred jute boxes and he had a warehouse. And in those days there were still 45 singles. A distributor, they would order the records and we would go in weekly and you'd put in new stuff. But always Strangers in the Night, My Way, Summer Wind, there was at least five to 10 Sinatra tracks on there. And around 1980, Frank, I was a huge New York Yankees fan growing up outside of Albany. And Frank, of course, recorded New York, New York, which became their theme song. And I he came to Saratoga and my grandfather got tickets. And I had always appreciated the music, but when I saw him live, I started going through the albums. My parents had the collection, got a real interest in it, and that's how it really began. I will tell you that once I got to know Frank, he asked me a similar question, and I told him that my first awareness of Frank Sinatra, in 1974 of October, he did a concert called The Main Event which was a live satellite television thing from Madison Square Garden, similar to what Elvis did, Aloha from Hawaii, in those days with the satellites. And my grandfather had gotten tickets for my parents and my aunt and uncle to go see the show. And my aunt and uncle lived in New Jersey. So we as a family drove down to New Jersey. They then went off to Madison Square Garden. And I remember my first recollection of Frank Sinatra was staying up in 1974. I was eight years old. And we were looking to see our parents in the audience at the main event tv show i had no interest in frank sinatra whatsoever told him that he actually laughed because he asked when i was first exposed to him but but that was it after i heard the music i was kind of hooked and it's been a you know from going that traveling with him on the road i started working with him in 1984 running his fan club the sinatra society of america in this country i was in college during those four years of college i would travel with him and when i was off usually at atlantic city in las vegas and then when i graduated became a full-time position and nothing i could have planned when i think back on it there was no template there was no roadmap. i was just very lucky happened to be at the right place at the right time and we'll also tell you that i think my age had a lot to do with my relationship with him because Being 18, and most of the conversations I had with him initially were about music, he had always said that he was hoping that the younger generations would find his music. So I had no illusion that if I was my age now, and he was alive, and I was the head of the fan club, they probably would have taken me backstage, had a picture, shook his hand, and that would have been it. But I think the relationship took hold because he saw somebody so young, so interested and invested in his music, and I've just been lucky. Yeah, it's almost been 40 years, hard to explain.
0: It it is amazing. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered when you went to work for Frank Sinatra?
1: Yeah, well, you know, when I met him, he was about 67, 68 years old. So I had read all the stories, but he really was a lot mellower. He certainly was a perfectionist. I really never saw him upset or angry. Only one time I remember was at the Garden State Arts Center in Homedale, New Jersey. And Frank was a stickler for time. He would always say, if you're not early, you're late. And he was pacing back and forth, looking at his watch. It was like 8.02. And he said, why, why is the show not happening? Why didn't the overture start? And his production manager, Hank Catania, who I was standing with, said, you know, Mr. S, some kind of technical problem, but uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And Frank was like, this is a weeknight. There are people that probably hired babysitters. There's a noise ordinance. I want to do my show. Forget the technical problems. Give me one like. Give me the band, and I'll go out and do a show. And and that was Frank Sinatra. He really was a perfectionist, and he really lived to entertain that audience.
0: There's a bookend question that I've always wanted to ask you, which is, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered about Frank Sinatra after his death?
1: Oh, okay. Well, I always knew he was very generous, and while he was alive, he did not like anybody that worked with him or anybody that was involved to speak of that. And I became very close with his accountant who had been with him for 45 years, Sonny Golden, who actually started in, was a song plugger and then graduated to be an accountant at the Sands. And Frank actually saw him years later at the Sands in the late 50s and hired him away from Jack and Trotter to work, he worked with Frank up until the end. But Sonny told me a story that when he was first hired that sort of encapsulates Frank Sinatra, that you, the story you don't hear. So after he left Vegas and moved to LA to work for Frank, after about a week, he got a manila envelope. And in that envelope were newspaper clippings. And Frank had put a note on each one of these, send a nickel, send a dime, send a quarter to these people. And Sonny called up Mickey Rudin, who was Frank's attorney, and said, I I made a mistake. I can't work for this man. And Mickey said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he's deranged. He sent me a, a box of clippings. With notes, send a nickel, dime—not in my name, but in some. And Mickey laughed and said, "A nickel is five thousand dollars. A dime is ten thousand. A quarter is twenty-five thousand dollars." So Sonny thought Frank was, and that if you really wanted to know Frank Sinatra. The generosity from with him, from him, within him—he never wanted to expose for some reason, and some of that came to light. I—I I was privy to it. Being on the road with him, because I know he would, if he would read a story or see something of somebody in distress, he would send one of his people out to try to help them or send money never in his own name. But I think after he passed, it was more of the loyalty and the, like I said, the generosity that he sort of did not want exposed. I was aware of it, but not aware of to which extent that was so prevalent in his life.
0: You are aware of so much of Sinatra's career, and, and I sometimes think you undersell yourself on it because you, as you mentioned, you started as head of his fan club, and you've been associated with Frank Sinatra and the family for all these decades. Your encyclopedic knowledge of Sinatra, in terms of his music and everything else—movies, everything that he did—it's second to none. Is there anybody that's even a close second to you that knows all this stuff?
1: Oh, I'm sure there's got to be, but I, you know, it's very. I was always the youngest in that crew, you know, with his pianist, Bill Miller, who had been with him since 1951, his guitarist, alveola musicians, and his son, Frank Jr., who came on in 88 to conduct for him. And as I said, a lot of people stayed with him for years that he was just very loyal. So it's very sad at this time in my life, being 56, that a lot of those people have passed away. And I guess that's the curse of being the youngest, but I do miss that I'm not able to pick up the phone and call Bill Miller or Frank Sinatra Jr. or somebody that was actually there. Luckily, through the years and being associated with them, I was imparted a lot of that knowledge and a lot of those stories that if I didn't witness, I heard firsthand from people that were there. I've done several books on Frank Sinatra, and any story that I put in there is something that I either witnessed or somebody witnessed firsthand because, let's be honest, he's probably one of the most chronicled human beings in the world, certainly in the 20th century. And just a lot of those stories that are in books, they just get keep being rehashed. And a lot of them aren't true. And you don't really get to know the full character of Frank Sinatra. So uh, boy, I do wish there was somebody that had my knowledge, but there is nobody that can go back now and, and be on the road with him. I was always very cognizant of the fact at the time that at one point this would end, and I wanted to take in and absorb as much as, as I can. And I'm certainly happy I did, because although it seems like another lifetime, it's in my mind, it's in my heart, it's in my brain, and it's it's there. When I talk to somebody like you or somebody that was associated with Frank, a lot of the stories that are in there, just they start flowing. And yes, I feel absolutely blessed, but also sort of sad that there's only a handful of, of us left that I can still speak with authority to, you know, or witness to him.
0: Something you might want to think about, but it's at the point where I think it's important for you to do an oral history of your association with Frank Sinatra.
1: Yeah, I, you know, we have a channel, Seriously Sinatra. I think it's been on 15 years, and I've been trying for, since the inception, to get as many people that knew him or involved with in him, and we do these shows called In Conversation. I just did one with Bob Gaudio, you mentioned Watertown, who wrote and conceived Watertown. I've done one with a lot of the musicians who worked with him. Thankfully, I have archived interviews. Uh, I was very good friends with Billy May, certainly Frank Sinatra Jr., Bill Miller. So I do have an archive of a lot. When I do go back to do a book or a project, as you'll see in the Watertown notes, I can go back and listen to those and call from those. Like I said, firsthand, I have quotes in that, those Watertown notes from Bill Miller and Alveola who were actually at the session. They've both been gone at least a decade, but luckily I've had sat with them for hours and tape you know uh, asked them questions and they were always very generous and gracious to me with their knowledge
0: what i was suggesting and and you interpreted it the way i thought you would but i was suggesting that you do an oral history because of your knowledge at this point someone should sit down with you over several hours or days and record your memories your knowledge and combine those two so there's a record of that as well
1: Oh yeah, I've I've never thought of that. Sometimes when I do the conversations, or when I speak to somebody like you, like I said, I'll remember some of the stories. Luckily, in the early years, especially when he was traveling, I would make notes. Certainly of what he was singing in concert, because I was doing the Sinatra Society, and we put it in there. And I do have boxes up in the attic of notes of things. But you know, Frank Sinatra doesn't need me. And in in the scheme of things, even though I've been involved with him forty years. I'm really a blip in his career. I knew him the last 15 years or so of his life. And I think that, you know, people always say Frank Sinatra never wrote an autobiography. And I'll say, well, he didn't write one, but if you listen to the music and you'll hear everything you need to know about Frank Sinatra. And so if you're in a jovial mood, listen to something like Come Fly With Me or Come Swim With Me. If you're in a depressed mood, listen to Only the Lonely or We Small Hours or Watertown. And if you don't understand Frank Sinatra after hearing him sing, There's nothing I can tell or impart to you that would that's going to make you, I feel sorry for you, but there's nothing that I can tell you to, you know, open your mind to appreciate him because everything, that is why generation after generation find him unlike some other artists, because there is some X factor there that I'm not, I don't know and can't put my hand on, but every generation finds him and they feel that he's singing to them or they feel that what he is singing is honest. And you don't get that from a lot of singers. And it's just amazing. And look, I don't take any credit for what I do. I always say I'm working with like a Tiffany Diamond, his legacy, his catalog. Now and then we have to just buff it so people see how that thing sparkles and shines. But I'm blessed to work with probably the greatest catalog of popular music that ever will be because nobody, you know, a lot of people forget you couldn't do that today. He was doing two or three albums a year with orchestras from 38 to 60 pieces. There's not musicians around anymore that those people used to do it for a living. You, w- I would talk to musicians who worked at sessions. They would do a TV show in the morning, another thing in the afternoon, then a record session, and then they'd go play a casual. I mean, they could work seven days a week back then in the 50s and 60s out here in LA. Television was using an orchestra. They were just pros, and so they could go in and do an album. And forget, remember, he was doing it in the days, no starting or stopping, very few intercuts. If they made a mistake, they'd do the take again. So uh, it's just a level that's not there anymore. And again, I just feel blessed to be able to be part of this legacy.
0: You're involved in Watertown, and I mentioned it in the opening, and you also talked a little bit about it, but what was the reasoning behind reissuing it at this time, remastered, you obviously are very proud of it because you're involved in that project as well. So what was it that you focused on Watertown versus any other albums, obviously, that yeah. you recorded? Well,
1: we've always looked at anniversaries for reissues. And Watertown was originally released in 1970. So this was planned come out in 2020. But as you know, COVID happened and everything was put on the back burner. Watertown has always been an anomaly in the Sinatra catalog. It, it was his least selling album. Also, it had a cover on it that I don't think helped the record sales. But I absolutely love the album. I feel that it is his We Small Hours Are Only the Lonely for the 70s. And you have to remember, it's really a fertile period in Frank Sinatra's career. He recorded this in 69. But in December, the end of December of 1968, he records My Way as a single. That is released and becomes a huge hit. In the beginning of 1969, he starts working on a follow-up to the Sinatra and Joe Beam album, which he never completes. He does the album, decides not to re- release it in total, and they put six tracks later on an album called Sinatra and Company. The other ones weren't released for years later, so the album never came out. Then he has to build an album because My Way is such a hit with Don Costa. He builds a, an album around My Way. And then the next album is an album of all Rod McCune songs. And then it's Watertown. So in that year period, Frank Sinatra, except for a few single sessions, was doing contemporary music. And I think of all of them, I love the singing on the McCune album. I think it's hampered by He Reads Some Poems, which I think lost a lot of people, even though there's great background music by Don in there, great arrangements. But I think Watertown, if you listen to it in total, it is heartbreaking and devastating. And probably, remember Frank Sinatra was the pioneer of a concept album. And what he did was, starting in the late 40s, at, even at Columbia, but mainly in the 50s when he got to Capitol, he would take songs that were thematically he would bring together and he would have an arranger do the entire album. And in a lot of cases, he would have Khan and Van Huesen, who, who were like his personal songwriters, Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Huesen. He would have them write an opening track and maybe a closing track, like Only the Lonely or Come Fly With Me. And then he would put all these songs from different songwriters together. This is the true concept album because this is the only album Frank not recorded where the songwriters wrote specifically songs for him to follow one concept. And I think if you read the notes in it, it, it's sort of been lost for years. And it all always had a sound to me, sounded like it had a wet blanket on it. I was able to get the original master tapes and Larry Walsh, who's like a magician, remix this. It sounds like a different album, but it sounds more like a Frank Sinatra album. And it really is heartbreaking. It really is devastating. Not monopolizing your time, but it was ahead of its time because when this was recorded, the story is about a woman leaving her children and her husband and leaving them. That in the 70s, early 70s and late 60s was not the case. you would never heard that. Today, it's commonplace because of the way things are. But back then, it really was an anomaly. And I don't think a lot of people understood the gravity of the album.
0: What's your favorite cut on the album? Or do you have a favorite cut on
1: the album? Uh, I have a couple, but I would say for a while are Michael and Peter. And As you mentioned that, the real genesis of the album is that this man's wife leaves him and he's going to raise the children. And he writes, the songs are letters. And after he passed away, Michael and Peter go in his desk and they find those letters. And that's what he was singing. These are the letters he was writing about or about to his wife about what was happening in his life. So it's really, as Frankie Valley and Bob Bodice said, about letters in a drawer that are found after he passed away. But I actually, For a While is a wonderful song. Michael and Peter, those are two of my favorites. Well, let's
0: hear For a While.
2: In day to day Turned another way With a laugh A kind hello Some small talk With those I know I forget that I'm not over you for a while wave, an easy grin a smile to put them in with other Some work I've got to do I forget People say to me You need company When you have Some time to spend Drop around And meet a friend They forget that I'm not old
1: And
0: that was for a while. And you also like Michael and Peter. Why?
1: Uh, just listen to Jake Holmes' lyrics. It's, they're just so simple, but it's about how somebody, he's telling the wife what's happening in their lives, the children, how they're growing up. And can you imagine somebody writing that to their partner or wife in a vacuum and not knowing where she is or if she's coming back? So like I said, when you hear the album in context, Uh, it's really devastating
0: let's listen to Michael and Peter Michael is
2: you he has your face he still has your eyes remember Peter is me Except when he smiles And if you look At them both For a while You can see They are you such a saint she takes the boys whenever she can she sure needs a man all those years i've worked for santa fe never ever missed a single day one more without a raise in pay And I'm leaving And the air still has a country smell Everyone is looking well As far as anyone can tell The sun will rise tomorrow You'll never believe How much they're growing John Henry came to cut the lawn asked me where you'd gone Can't tell you all the times he's been told But he's so old Yes, that's all the news I've got today At least that's all the news that I can say my way.
0: That was Michael and Peter. What was the biggest challenge for you in remastering the original album? You talked a little bit about it sounded a little bit dreary in terms of the sound and you cleaned that up a little bit. Were there any other challenges?
1: Thank God Bob Gaudio was still with us and I was able to talk to Joe Scott who was one of the arrangers at Frankie Valley and Jake Holmes. But no, usually when we go back and do these albums there's a process that I'll do and that is I will listen to the original pressing of an album, the first pressing that ever came out, see how it sounded. I then also go in the tape boxes. And if I'm lucky, especially with Sonny Burke, who produced most of the reprise albums, there might be notes in there. And so you can use that as a guide. But like I said before, what we're just trying to do with a lot of these albums is I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. There are some albums, and it's funny because there was a man named Frank Lako who engineered this album. And he worked in New York, mainly for Columbia. At They had a, a studio called The Church on 30th Street, which was an old church, acoustically great sound. But he used a lot of reverb on albums. In fact, Frank Sinatra, when he signed with Capitol Records, 99% of his albums were done in Los Angeles. Watertown, the backing tracks were done in New York. And the, al- the other album that Frank Laco engineered for him in 1981 was called She Shot Me Down. And that album, we get so many complaints about people saying it's bathed in reverb. So I have that on the list because we have a five-year plan. It was a little upset with COVID, but usually we reissue two or three seminal albums a year, and usually a box set every couple of years or a big set. And so we fit them. We, I put them in there, and we always look for an anniversary. I will tell you that next year, 1953, it'll be 70 years since he signed with Capitol Records. So I'm working on a multi-album project. It'll be his platinum anniversary with Capitol Records. And nowadays, because of supply chain issues and vinyl and everything, before I could get everything done and give it to them a couple months before and we could get it out, now there's a six, eight-month lead time. Things are just backed up. So there's really a lot of pre-planning now that before I could do it from the seat of my pants or if we had to get something out quick. But Larry Walsh and I spend hours you know, going through the original. We're not trying to change anything. We're trying to improve it. That's it. Right.
0: And it's mainly a technical issue more than anything else because you can't improve Sinatra, So, but you want to improve the sound of Sinatra within the recording world.
1: Oh, yeah. And you have to remember a lot, especially Capitol, when he was at Capitol, the early stuff is mono. Then you get stereo, but it's three-track stereo. There's really not much you can do. You have band left and right, you have Frank in the center. So it's just a balancing act. And also you have to remember today how younger people are listening to music. So a lot of people are buying vinyl, but the majority of people are streaming or listening to it. So we have to be cognizant of the fact that they're listening to those with earbuds. They're not listening like an audiophile or so we do the vinyl, but then we do, you know, streaming. And Frank, it's astonishing to me that he's streaming billions of songs a year, which I think is fantastic. And there is nobody from his era of that type of music. He's eons above everybody. And he's up there with Elvis and the Beatles in terms because there are certain acts, like I said, that each generation finds.
0: And the fact that here it is, the 21st century, and he's still being listened to, as you said, with all the streaming going on. Do you find that different generations find different things about Frank Sinatra's recordings? The authenticity is always there, but they take away different things. Do you find that from just talking to people?
1: Yes. You know, Frank's last performance was in February of 1995. The last time he really sang a concert on stage, that was five, six songs. So you've got almost two generations that he's removed from. But you had a generations where, as with me, he had been played through most of the 20th century, people knew him or were aware of him. So there is some sort of reverence and there's some sort of, I hate the word nostalgia, but it reminds people of a better time or of their family when they hear Frank Sinatra. The newer generation, we find that putting his music in video games, commercials, synchronization uses movies. There was a hologram of Frank and Blade Runner singing One for My Baby. I will see an uptick when a song is used in a commercial or in a movie. The streamings will jump because you have to make people exposed to this music. And I think when they hit a certain age, late 20s, early 30s, people will gravitate to the. They have a little living under their belt. Right. They understand exactly. Yeah. understand Frank Sinatra better.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Are you still amazed in all the decades you've been working at this that, again, we, we touched about it earlier, but just the enduring legacy of Frank Sinatra, that generation after generation, there's a quality level that is always maintained. So sometimes what happens is with certain artists, it diminishes over time or the marketing of it changes over time. But you seem to always have that quality level built in on anything that you do regarding Frank Sinatra.
1: Yeah, and, and so I'm an employee, but I'm very lucky because his children ran the companies when he passed away. And there always was that mantra of authenticity what you said. We do not cheapen the brand. if it's something, they don't do things for money. And my having known Frank, my mindset of when I do any of these projects is, what would Frank think or would Frank approve? I can't go to him like I would years before, but still Tina Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra, they are part of the company. They run Frank Sinatra Enterprises, and Bob Finkelstein, who's been the family attorney. next to me and Bob, I mean, we've been there a hundred years. <laughs> Bob's in with them almost 50. So there's an institutional knowledge, but we I think what you're getting at is the family is there and they are involved, but also, the two main people that work with them knew Frank Sinatra. So there's not anything once removed. Again, as I say, any one of these things I do, I'm hoping that Frank would approve of it. What would Frank do if you were here? What would Frank say? And that's how we do it. And like I said, I'm very lucky that they don't do things just to take the money and run. There's a consistent level. There's planning. And we feel that the word you said, authenticity, is the key.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Charles Pignon. He's president of Frank Sinatra Enterprises and Sinatra Archivist. For everything about Frank Sinatra, including the re-released, newly mixed, and remastered Watertown, go to sinatra.com. Charlie, thanks for being on the show.
1: Ira, I thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. And you deserve credit too for helping this legacy because you've been a champion of the music. And as I said, We have to have people be exposed to it. And you have been a fan and a champion, and you've always been great helping us out. Uh, Without people like you, the legacy wouldn't be what it is. It just wouldn't. And I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Thank you, Charlie. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.